Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Kenny Holmes checking in. Are you there, Robert? Robert Kraft signing in. Yes. (laughs) All systems go. Presented by Spitfire Audio. This is Score the Podcast. Say hello to composer Carol. Hello. She might be composer-comedian, Carol, after our Quiplash episode. (laughs) Very true. And we're also joined again this week by executive producer Matt Schrader, who has some news for us about Blockbuster. huge, Yeah, made a big announcement this week about when Blockbuster Season 2 is coming out. Um, A lot to get to. We have a big guest this week, Oscar-winning composer of Emma Cider House Rules, Chocolat. A Dog's Purpose, Race, Because of Winn-Dixie, The Manchurian Candidate, so many great films. She's also featured in our documentary, Score, and her first solo album, Ask the River, from Node Records, releases this Friday, May 8th. Rachel Portman is on the show today. Yeah, what yeah. a great one. Our first guest joining us from London, from England. Yeah. Oh, is Rachel our first one from England? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, we've we had we've had people like Stephen Price came to us, but this is right. the first time we're having a guest join us from overseas. We're taking advantage of this new format. Yeah. The teleporting thing is really working out. You know, you stand on that square and you click your heels together and boom, you're in London. Um, I really love Rachel's record. She played us some of it and I thought it's, it, I mean, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Rachel as a film composer but the record's beautiful shout out to tracy mcknight who has node records and uh shout out to rachel yeah so cool and i also want to say mash raider isn't blockbuster winning awards and like don't you have a trophy shelf yeah getting we've heavy had a good right uh last last couple weeks here um the uh season one uh one let's see it's a webby honoree for a uh, best miniseries um, love that best sound and music um in a podcast and um then we also picked up uh, a couple uh gold awards that's the first first place awards at the new york festival's radio awards um wow yeah. we nice. beat out some people from like the bbc and some some much bigger established outlets cbs news um but we won best miniseries there and uh best biography too for uh, right on. season one of Blockbuster, so it's, season two, it all this is all happening kind of at once. But we just uh, announced this week that season two uh, will be coming out in June. So um, we have a ten episode season. It's building on all the same stuff. I can't tell you any anything about what it's about yet, <laughs> but we will be releasing a trailer soon. As Nicholas Bertel would say, respect, 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 man. <laughs> and Matt, I wonder, did they have an award for like? Coolest co-hosts or um, most badass friend group. We could always start friend something. Group. The score award for coolest co-host. <laughs> yeah, man, I think so. It's a shoe-in. It's a shoe-in. All right, we have a lot to get to, but before we do, we want to remind our great listeners about our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of the guests that we have right here on the show. It is uh, very popular with our composers. I mean, I think most composers that we talk to say it's so cool that Spitfire's your sponsor. They particularly like the Bernard Herrmann Composer Toolkit. You can get that incredible... Yeah, that's it. That's, That's the sound. That's a sample from 
the library right there. Kenny doing it. Uh, actually, I think we do play a demo at the end of this episode. Yes, we absolutely will. A uh, lot of great sounds in the Bernard Herman toolkit and many more packages available. Um, they also have the great Composer magazine on their website that uh, you can read and watch videos and different interviews with composers of the shows like Ozark and Handmaid's Tale. They've also done one with Justin Hurwitz from La La Land, who we've had on the show here. And may I add, they have a big announcement coming tomorrow, May 7th, and it's we're all waiting with bated breath to see what this is. But some new thing that they're uh, they're announcing, not even we know what this is going to be, but, uh, but it's something coming out tomorrow, a new package. How cool. We like new packages. Most important for all our listeners Do we have a deal for you? Pretty fresh. 20% off your first purchase. It's good on over 50 different Spitfire libraries, which is an awesome deal. You just use this promo code, SCORE2020. It's a limited time offer, so be sure to use that promo code, SCORE2020, to elevate your music. I do want to mention one quick thing, too, that I found really cool. They've teamed up with Westworld. And they're doing a contest uh, that's going to be judged by J.J. Abrams and Ramin Javadi, the composer. Um, They're putting out a a clip of of Westworld and they're challenging everyone to score it themselves. And the winner gets this terabytes full drive of every Spitfire library. It's really cool. You should check it out. Go just go to their social media Spitfire audio. Um, But I'm curious to see what people come up with and what a great idea. I may just have to take a shot, you know. Carol, are you going to enter that? I might just, I don't know. We'll see. Composer Carol, come on. You'll have to, to get the Spitfire Make Master us proud. Yeah, no, it looks really exciting. Make us proud, Carol. Come on, enter it. <laughs> please, Carol, please. please. <laughs> I'll enter a score, the podcast. And then we won't qualify for the prizes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's up, Kenny? Tell us some news. Well, first, we have to address that uh, we played another round of Quiplash over the weekend uh, with mm. our guests Stein and Dixon, or as we like to call them, Kyle and Stein, Michael and Dixon from uh, yep. season one, the Stranger Things composers, and also the Newton brothers yep. from last season. And uh, man, the battle of the composer duos. It was hilarious. It was great. And I must say, <laughs> it was a big, big win. Speaking of awards for uh, score co hosts, all three of uh, our team won the Is three that games. Right? It was me, Robert, and Carol took games one, two, and three. And uh, we're, Damn, I we're, didn't even realize. we're walking around with our noses in the air for sure. We're. Yeah. Bring it on for next round, whoever Matt, whoever you're going to bring on the show, we're going to we're going to smoke them. Yeah, the word's got to be out in the composer community. You got to bring your A game when you play Quiplash with the score team. <laughs> yes, uh, so let's get to the news. Um, this week was May the fourth. May the fourth be with you, and today May the sixth be with you, all you guys. I just want to make sure you are uh, nice. Good I'm with, with that. Um, Sif. It's not as catchy, but uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> The Sith. We could go with the Sith. Uh, big announcement from Maybe. Star Wars happened on May the fourth. Taika Waititi mm-hmm. will be directing and co-writing a new Star Wars film, a, a film going to theaters at some point. I think it's scheduled yeah. for like twenty twenty four or something. So it's quite a ways away. Um, but he's going to be co-writing with the Oscar-nominated writer of nineteen seventeen. She co-wrote with Sam Mendes, Christy 
Wilson Cairns. So some great writing there. And, of course, Taika, he was involved with The Mandalorian. He directed the season finale. He played the robot guy. I can't remember his name, um, but he voiced the robot. Um, So I guess the big question— He was huge in in Jojo Rabbit, too. Oh, yeah, Jojo Rabbit. Did he win a screenplay, uh, original screenplay award for that? He won an Oscar for that and directed it. Quite a writing team. Yeah. yeah, he's he's big, and they've they've found their guy. The question is, who will score the film? Of course, um, the last you know, John Williams is is done. He's hung it up with Star Wars, and the last couple Star Wars films that weren't John Williams, of course, John Powell and Michael Giacchino. So, I mean, what do you think, Robert? Who do you think Taika is going to stick with his Mark Mothersbaugh Thor connection? Um, does he go back to Giacchino? Because there was kind of a weird thing where Giacchino was looked at as like maybe he's the next Star Wars composer, but then they jo- brought John Powell in for Solo. I have a guess. Forget Ludwig too, and and as Ludwig my guess, Mandalorian. Matt just said my guess. I think I, I'm just want to guess that the Mandalorian score and that relationship and Ludwig's freshness with the Black Panther material. That's a that's a contender right there. So I guess it uh, depends on too like what world they're taking this into because the Mandalorian feel was way different than the Star Wars main franchise. So until we kind of figure out what the storyline is or who it's about, maybe that'll paint. But you a know, it was picture. interesting because Taika came in and he did um, Thor Ragnarok with Mark Mothersbaugh. Right. Who they had worked together, and Mark does the uh, who's been on the show um, does what we do in the shadows right now with yep. Taika um, and a lot of that team. Um, Thor Ragnarok was a lot more kind of comedic and lighthearted, um, and he's listed as doing the sequel too the the next Thor Ragnarok. It's called Love and Thunder. Mm-hmm. So they're, right. they're coming right. back doing that too. So that connection's still there. So I could see there being a uh, you know a little bit more lighthearted kind of style of a little bit of maybe what they were aiming for at first with solo. And then a lot of other kind of, you know, chefs came into the kitchen and, and started to, to tweak that, uh, that movie around a little bit. I don't think it performed as well. Um, the music was great. And, uh, and I think maybe, you know, I could see Mark Mothersbaugh coming in and working with Taika again on this. Yeah. The music was great. I wonder if it would have won any awards if they remembered to submit it. for. Awards. That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> They, it's a kind of a perfect segue to another piece of news because the one thing that we can all be sure of on this podcast moment is that nobody probably knows, including Taika. And it's a very, very complicated is, is maybe not the word, but it's a process to make the deal with the composer and make sure that the composer really gets the vibe and... Taika may have ideas in his head, but he also has a studio who might have ideas. So yep. they have to go through all the beats. He may have a some one of the people we just mentioned, but the studio may think, I want you to meet with XYZ. So, and you can't get ahead of it. Kenny, you want to share the piece of news that we, yeah. we okay. blasted out there? So last week we had a discussion about... Daft Punk making a return. Uh, Dario Argento said in an Italian interview that uh, Daft Punk reached out to him. They're fans of his films, and they're going to be working together. Well, then just days later, 
it comes out that the producers want to retract that and and clarify that he's interested in working with Daft Punk as everyone is, I'm sure, but um, kind of a little bit of a flub, maybe jump the gun on an announcement, um, but not not a good look. Robert, I'm curious as an executive from from that standpoint, if that kind of thing comes out, like is this bad? Is this no big deal? I think it probably is somewhere between those two. It's certainly not good. It's somewhere between no big deal and, you know, we all have been in a situation in our life, whether it's in show business or just personally, where you want to tell somebody a piece of news that's just about to happen and you're so excited. And then you either think, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to blow it. I don't want it getting back to that person that I'm broadcasting something before we've absolutely decided. So I think it's somewhere in that zone, which is Dario Argento may have have had a conversation with Daft Punk, talked to their manager. You don't want to think that he talked to the girlfriend's uncle's roommate's brother's landlord (laughs) who said, hopefully they know about it. Yeah, right. Daft Punk is watching your movie upstairs, but I think it remains to be seen. I'd love to see it happen. And I would hope for Dario's sake, for any director's sake, that Daft Punk doesn't say, you know what, man, we were going to do it, but because you got ahead of us, we're out. So we'll wait and see. Not pretty. little messy. Yeah, uh, another thing that it. came out last week, just after our uh, episode and our chat with Leonard Malton, um, we were discussing about how the Oscars move forward with this whole pandemic and closing of theaters and uh here we are the the oscars have amended the qualifications a streaming a film few different ca- categories right yeah but the big the big one the big notable one for our current state of like the world a streaming film can be eligible for the oscars without a theatrical release now they don't expect yep. this to carry over to next year obviously they're going to wait and see what the government does with the, you know, the shutdowns and opening theaters back up. But while theaters are closed, they're allowing streaming films that go straight to streaming to qualify um, with the caveat that they had a plan to go to theaters. So they're not going to let like TV movies just start entering. Um, So they have to have had some kind of plan, which throws a little bit of a wrench in it when you think about like independent films that may haven't maybe haven't gotten distribution and that plan maybe wasn't even in place yet. Um, but ultimately, the big films that you know we're expecting to compete will still be able to compete. Uh, Robert, there was one about the music side of things that caught your eye. Well, it's always been tricky. The, the one where they decided a new rule that said original score must be made up of 60% original music and 80% for sequels. I mean, for a couple decades, I inherited the rule that was predominantly original music, which meant which means 50. 50.01%. <laughs> and right. we always made the joke endlessly. So are we counting eighth notes and rests and measures? And there were a number of situations where composers who shall remain nameless were absolutely furious that they weren't considered because they wrote a very small amount of music, but it was absolutely important. And then you get to, you know, the incredibly brilliant castaway score which is nine minutes long and was nominated for an academy award because as those of you that are fans of that brilliant tom hanks movie 
there's one cue. It's the end of the movie. There's no music on the island. And they decided to do that. And they decided to keep it silent. And the whole thing plays with sound effects. And Sylvester plays one brilliant cue. So you can have just nine minutes of music. So wait, to be, to be clear on that, it's 51% of the total music, not 51% of the film. Correct. Of the total music. In other words, if you right. have a, a movie that is 15 songs that take up, I'm going to say, 45 like, minutes. Like right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example. Correct. And then there's a little original score while you're out. You can't be considered as... Because they say every time it comes back, it's an award for the craft of composition, spelled with a C, craft, of course, though I've lobbied hard to get that changed to a K. <laughs> uh, so they, you almost got it. <laughs> almost got it. They want the composer to be acknowledged for scoring the film, not for adding interstitial music between songs. So I think the bigger weird rule change, and I don't know why they did it, nobody asked my opinion, of course, but the sound editing and sound mixing awards have been combined into best achievement in sound the reason i am concerned about that is i know great sound editors and i know great sound mixers and to have them all in the same stew is seems unfair to me i don't know it makes me think because we hear that every year and i i know for years a lot, and I still hear this from people all the time. Why are there two cat? What's the difference between the categories? And yeah, after working around some of those aspects, it's much clearer. On you know, one of those is basically the editorial side and how you how you gather the the way the sounds sound, and the other one is how it's kind of woven into the overall story. But um, but they've been uh, a lot of people have said for a while those two should be combined. So I wonder if this is something that's been fueled by you know public uh public perception on not really understanding the difference so are they going to be addressed in duos then jeez uh it let must me get be. stand by you while can't just I give the sound mixer the award but the editor isn't listed so they're i guess they're just going to be a package deal and they're going to come up together if they win i guess i'm going to go with yes no and maybe is my answer well, I think the the networks will probably feel good about this if anybody is because it'll shorten the broadcast by a percentage, but it yeah. just seems like two important roles squished into one and they're completely different jobs. But you're right, Matt. I think there was big confusion both from the audience and maybe even from voters that aren't from the audio world that even don't even really understand what what they're voting on. The other thing I've been expecting for a little while is the short film category being cut from the broadcast um i'm i'm always a little bit surprised because those are the two that always seem a little bit out of place those are the ones that no one has seen any of the entries from the short documentary and sometimes the short um you know animated film or whatever it is occasionally you will have seen something and it made its way to youtube or vimeo or something beforehand but most of those are totally yeah if it had a cause behind it usually right right um kobe bryant uh, one for for uh, for his short film. So I mean, there are some of these that make it into the the mainstream a little bit, but though it's usually nobody knows any of those. I'd be surprised if most of the voters have seen them. Don't they get nominated by winning certain film festivals? It's not even a voting thing. Yeah, you qualify much... through film festivals. Um, yeah, I think so... they have to for that category. So yeah, it's a little more complicated. But I guess for, as for now, that's sticking around. 
Super interesting. A lot of changes. And, uh, you know, at least they're adapting. Um, it's going to be an interesting summer as, as movies continue to come out. I know, like, Wonder Woman 84 w- was moved to August. So the question is, are they still planning a theatrical with a streaming as a backup? Or are they going to keep pushing them back? But we're going to run out of the 2020. Theaters, yeah, eventually. Do they sell in a row of, you know... 20 seats across, are they selling every third seat and not filling the room? Right. I mean, we got some issues ahead uh, for every aspect of our business and the economy and the world. Yeah. Wait a Big second. News. Wait, you know what that, that means? Uh-oh. It, are we, we there? Score the mailbox. We just got a, a piece of mail. In. <laughs> Is that what that sound means? That's it. That means the mail hit the mailbox. Oh my That's what God. you get every time. Instead of the email ch- chime, you get yeah. that. <laughs> really wakes you up. <laughs> what do we get this time? Uh, we have an, a message here from Nicholas Abraham of La Mirada, California. Hey, Nick. Nick would like a question specifically for Mr. Kraft. Let's, oh, Nick, let's not Nick, start you're this. already my favorite. Let's not start Mr. Kraft. Let's, yeah. let's just. You can uh, just call me Senor Kraft. All right, Mr. Kraft, during your time working for 20th Century Fox as music director, what is the longest recording session that you supervised? Huh. That's an interesting question. First of all, Nick, um, I'm not that, that sensitive about titles. I've always been really relaxed about it. But don't ever call me the music director again? Okay, bet. Um <laughs> I left that in there just for you. I thought I you like were going to say, but don't call me Mr. Kraft. That's my dad. <laughs> no, Mr. Kraft is good. Um, let's try this again. The first question is specifically for Robert. During your time working for 20th Century Fox as the president of music. I mean, I'm not that sensitive about it, so I don't want to. Um, what is the longest recording session you supervised? That's interesting. And I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind is a picture that we had to really re-examine the music and start to think about rescoring portions of it and remixing. And it was a movie that I like to call Prometheus. Mm. Not sure if the world We talked ever... about it in season one, right, with Harry Gregson Williams. Harry came in to do a little, I think it can now be told, we had a wonderful composer named Mark Streitenfeld that Ridley had hired. Mark had been the music editor on Kingdom of Heaven, a picture that Ridley had done with Harry as the composer. And then Harry took time off. He actually decided to take a sabbatical from being a film composer. And Ridley said to Mark Streitenfeld, who was a music editor and a composer, why don't you score the film? And I went to Abbey Road with Mark Streitenfeld and we scored the film, and I thought it sounded great. We came back, and this can happen occasionally. I just want to warn all you perspiring composers out there. The studio sometimes hears the score and says, that's not the movie we're making. And it it was... <laughs> that's uh, a nice way to put it. Yeah, it was ugly. And we the reason I would answer your question, Nick, what's the longest recording session? This is the longest recording process. The longest session, frankly, is... So we had to, you know, I think the technical term is futz with the score for a few months to kind of get it right and get some stuff to work. But 
the longest session, frankly, because of the AF of M, the American Federation of Musicians, sessions are truly a specific length. And if you go over, you're spending a lot of money. So just for those of you that aren't clear on this, sessions are three hours long. Usually for film music, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. There's an hour break, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. And then, of course, you sometimes have an evening session, 6 to 9 or 7 to 10. If, for example... And they have mandatory 10s in there too, right? Mandatory 10-minute breaks. Yep, take a 10. Tea breaks? Tea breaks, exactly right. Tea breaks, which you sometimes find out people are going out to their cars and doing more than just drinking (laughs) tea. So... um, but if I go over... <laughs> they come over, back really into the music. Really excited. They've never played a clarinet part so excitedly. <laughs> so, but if I go over that 10 to 1, let's say I want to push into the lunch break between 1 and 2, I have to start paying double scale or triple scale to keep the orchestra in the room. And boy, does that add up. And if you're on a music budget, you don't want to go past the three hours. The only time that happens, you're at the end of the movie you're desperate to get stuff done the clock is ticking to finish the film you're on a night session from let's say two to five or six to nine oh man you can't send everybody home you got to keep them from nine to ten or sometimes nine to ten and then you have the percussionist stay from ten to eleven and you're paying extra but you're finishing the movie so i'd say the longest recording session that i supervised Seven months, 12 days, and no, we never did one that long. Probably four (laughs) or five hours. Which is a long time. A long time to keep a band in the room and really expensive. Uh, Thanks for that question, Nick. Good question, Nick. Send your questions in. It's President with a capital P and it's Kraft with a K. Go ahead. (laughs) Score the mailbox (laughs) at epicleft.com. E P I C L E F F. We are going to take a quick break and coming back with Oscar-winning composer Rachel Portman. Stick around. We'll be right back. Right on. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Hilter Kunodotter, and you're listening to Score the Podcast. Let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. This is a big day for us. Um, this is our first guest coming to us from overseas live while we're doing the show. We've had guests come to L.A. to join us, but our guest today, she's an Oscar-winning composer. We were are welcoming Rachel Portman to the show. Rachel, we went to your house for uh, the shooting of Score, a film music documentary, and... Uh, 
in celebration of that, I have my Abbey Road mug full of tea. And I do want to preface this by saying that we just spent 30 minutes getting this set up and we appreciate all of the composers for helping us do this show remotely. Rachel, how are you doing in London today? I'm, I'm doing fine, thank you. Actually, I'm, I'm actually not in London. I'm, I'm about 50 miles outside London. Oh, you're... Um, so I, I'm lucky to um, be able to be um, away just uh, in, in the country which is great. That's fantastic. Um, during this, during this, during absolutely during lockdown, it's really great. I think yep. we learned actually because all things happen for a reason. I think we learned why Rachel is so in demand as a composer during the half hour just preceding <laughs> this podcast because we watched Rachel remain incredibly patient <clears throat> while we. <laughs> fussed and fidgeted and turned things on and off and tried to come to you live with this uh, podcast. But, Rachel, I salute you for just your, I think the word is equanimity. You just stayed calm. And I know that since you and I have worked on movies together and you've done so many, that quality, particularly when a director says, oh, I love that. However, and then they say, <laughs> can, can you change everything? Yes. A great composer, well. as we've all learned, has to say, tell me more about what you're thinking. And I just saw in the way you responded to us. Oh, uh, Rachel, tell us, I recently received, maybe two weeks ago, a single from you, from it wasn't attached to a film. Can you tell us? Are you? Should we yes. expect you to now be performing at next year's Grammys with a <laughs> and dancing with a dance troupe? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I'm I, I've um, I've I'm releasing an album on May the eighth um, mm-hmm. called "Ask the River," and you're referring to the first track. Much loved. Actually, that's the second track that's been released. The first track was called "Leaves and Trees." Mm. Um, ah. So, so there are two that are out at the moment. We have and, a little um, bit of much loved here, a little, a little clip. How long has this been in the works? Is this something that you started doing because of the stay-at-home orders, or are you? Is this something you've been working on for a long time? Um, I, I worked on the album over a year and a half. Oh wow! Actually, there's the yeah, it's it's um. There are 13 pieces on it, um, and they're all sort of quite sort of piano-focused. Although um, there's a cello and a violin that join some of the pieces, and it's 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 um, a sort of kind of environmental theme to it. Um, oh, the that's album. lovely. Leaves and trees. I can understand that. I hear we we heard much loved, and I wondered, as is often the case, when you are writing much loved, do you think? Um, I got to save this for a movie or for a theatrical, or do you think I'm, I'm staying the course. This is for my record. Does it ever occur to you that this could be cinematic and should be saved? Um, it, well, it's, it's completely usable because it, ah, it belongs nice. to me. Um, yes. it's, 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 it's absolutely all mine. Um, ah. no, I mean, you know what? I, I, I really enjoy the challenge of writing music. Um, uh, in lots of different forms, and 
um, you know, whether it's for the concert hall or whether it's um, setting voices or movies. And yeah, of course, I, uh, my first love and, you know, where I sort of, I'm drawn back to again and again is always film. And, um, but no, this, this is, this is music that is standing on its own. And it's a completely different challenge to, to write music that doesn't have, um, doesn't have something that it's describing as such, but it's got to come from within you. And I'm wondering, so it, is this the first time you've ever done an album that wasn't connected to film? Like put it out yeah, to the, the masses first. like this? Yeah, it's the, absolutely. It's the, first, it's, it's the first album I've done. I've written pieces before that haven't been connected to film or, or anything, as it were. Um, is this yeah, something but, you've wanted to it, do for a long time? Or w- when did you get the spark to say, you know what? Move over movies. Rachel's music's coming out solo. I don't know. I mean, just sort of, it gathered momentum as I, as I, I, it, I, I'm passionately interested in, um, the environment and our connection to the environment and the fact that we're part of it. And I worry about the earth. And, um, I think we, you know, like many, many people, I'm, I'm worried that we're not really listening to the earth. Um, and it was sort of born out of that. And I've, I've, I've written, you know, a bit of music, quite a bit of music over the last sort of, 10, 20 years, it's been connected to an environmental themes. And so this is very much, this collection of pieces is very much born out of that. Must um, be kind of nice to not have someone to answer to. It's great. It's great. It's, it, it's, it, it, it is, it, it's hard. It's, it's hard. You know, the, I've had my own, de- I mean, obviously I, the, the album had a deadline of when it needed to come out and everything like that. So I'd had my own internal deadlines, but um, it, bring, bringing music out of nothing, as it were, um, is is different to having a story or a script or or someone saying please can you do this which is what I'm so used to I'm so used to deadlines and um and fulfilling um f- f- fulfilling a storyline or something or or the wonderful thing of putting music to film which is just the most perfect alchemy ever. I'm, I'm curious that you said it had a deadline. I was about to say it. It's one of the distinguishing features of film music is that somebody's saying showing you the poster with a date on it comes out you know comes out october something and you need to have your final mix delivered and so one of the great luxuries of being a recording artist is that yeah the record company might want it for that christmas but it's funny that you said you had a a deadline i i think it's it's wonderful to hear you say they both have, they actually both have advantages. One of the nice things about writing film music is that there's an assignment and a, a reason to, to chase an emotion. And yeah. that when you're just a songwriter, you're sitting staring at a blank page or a keyboard or your guitar in your hand saying, you know, what should I write about today? It's lovely. You had the environmental theme. That's so yes. nice. I, th- I think so, but but you know, again, I'm I'm naturally very driven to write, and 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 I have my kind of my own internal engine in there saying you've got to do this. So I I, I think I set myself my own challenge to write these pieces. It was interesting for me. I understand that that internal urge to write very fundamentally. Um, I saw a conversation with you from several years ago where you 
talked about, of course, you know, joining the boys' school where you were the only girl, I imagine, and the music student, and then getting to Oxford and having a professor. I really related to this. Get having a professor who was interested in esoteric composition and that you were more drawn to melodic. And I think you described for me one of the dangers of the academy, as it were. I ran into a very similar thing where I wanted to write melodic, tuneful, audience-appreciated music. And I had professors that wanted me to sound like John Cage or, you know, can I just be... You must take your music from the charting the stars and put a note next to each star and that will be the piece. And I thought, so I just related to your impetus to write melodic music. And I didn't realize that it was also tied to an internal urge to, to continue to create. Some people need an assignment. Clearly you don't. Um, no, I don't think I do. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm happier when I'm feeding that animal inside me that needs to write so um in, in whatever ways it is but um yeah it's 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 tricky the whole thing of um the musical establishment and um you know and I think it was it, it has something to do with the time of when I was going through composition um studying composition at university um I think things might be different now I don't know um oh, they are. but I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot more um acceptance of different kinds of music now, which is great, um, you know, but, but it made me really focus um, to go into film because it seemed that the music that I wanted to write was certainly unwelcome to my, um, my tutor at, at Oxford. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, right, okay, I'm, I'm off. I'm going to do film okay, in, in that case. That. And up until that point, I, I thought I was just going to, I was going to write music, you know, sort of, um, music for the concert hall. I don't know what, what else to, how else to describe it, but classical music or whatever. And I thought I'll have much more fun in film. And I, and my goodness, I do, you know, than uh, writing that kind of music anyway. I'm curious about your background. Robert touched on a little bit. You went to a, an all boys school, um, yeah. as a kid, w were your parents musicians? What, what got you into music? And then how did that advance into film music? I know that's kind of a huge question, but we can start with the, the early <clears throat> days. What was your draw to getting into music? What did you first play and how did it sort of develop to where we're at today? Okay. Well, well, neither of my parents were musicians. Um, and I was the last of, uh, of five children and it's a big family. And, um, my mum noticed I was very musical or quite musical. And, um, and because she was very passionate about music, I mean, she spent all her time listening to classical music and the radio and um, going to listen to any live music that she could. I became her kind of focus in mm. terms of, you know, she found me, you know, we grew up in a, in a small village, but she found the local, she looked locally for the, the a, a, a really good piano teacher, which was quite hard to find where we were. And, um, you know, you, you know, nobody terribly special, but someone who was good. And so I was kind of nurtured, I, I nurtured in my musical education by her. Um, so I feel very fortunate in that. And I, you know, but I, so I, so I started learning the piano and then I um, took up the violin mm. and I, then I played the organ from about the age of 12. And then at 15, 
Um, the really big change for me was when I went to what you in, in the States call high school. Yeah. Um, so I, I left the school I was at, which had pretty me- mediocre um, musical education, to be honest. And I, and I went to um, this um, boys' school, this big boys' school, <laughs> where they only had very few girls there. And there I was very fortunate. I had incredible um, sort of injection of fantastic music education that really set me up. So I had those two years. And then from that, I was very lucky to be able to get into um, Oxford University to read music. And that was really my musical education. At what point did you realize that film music was a job, a thing you could go after? Because I know that a a lot of um, aspiring composers have told us about just, you know, when we made Score, the documentary, um, and even some composers have said, I'm so glad that this is is out there for young people to realize that this is a job because a lot of composers didn't realize that film composing is a job you can go after as a kid. Absolutely. I mean, there was no such thing, Um, you know, I mean, it was a completely different world. There was no one in my world that had anything to do with film, but I was very lucky because one of my older sisters um, had a boyfriend who was a composer and he had, uh, he had worked on, you know, you know, those, um, those wonderful um, uh, black and white films that were rescored, right? Sort of at the beginning of the eighties. Yes, there was uh, Abelgans's Napoleon, and um, exactly. Anyway, this this composer, um, my sister's boyfriend, who's called Ben Mason, Benedict Mason, who's a classical composer. um, He he did one of these silent films, and I helped him, and I copied out a lot of the music, and he took an interest in me, and I thought, God, that would be fun. That that really looks fun, and. That, so the combination of him and the fact that I was writing lots of music and also I I went to a lot of films um, as a student. You know, I, I saw sort of like the whole sort of canon of films that you could, of, of older films. Um, you know, I, I was helped. I, I got a really lucky break by meeting Alan Parker at a talk he gave after a showing of Midnight Express. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, and, and he... He passed on my cassette to David Putnam, who gave me my first job. But before that, I'd, I'd actually done a student film um, uh, made by students. Uh, Privileged. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, it was yeah, it, it, it had Hugh Grant in it. Um, uh, it was, uh, we were all sort of long, young students, and, um, um, and it, was, it was so much fun. I mean, I, my, I, my, I had joint um, role on it of, of crowdcasting as well as composer. On it, wow. we did all just you, mucked and did, did everything together. Have you run together. into Hugh Grant in the intervening years and had a chance to tap him on the shoulder and say, "I scored privilege." <laughs> well, well, he did, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he yeah, knew. we knew each other. Sure. We knew each other, so yeah, I have run into him. It's interesting that you mentioned Alan Parker and David Putnam, of course, great legendary filmmakers and yeah. film executives. Uh, in fact add Rachel Portman to that group and you have three of the titans of our film industry. But what's curious is that I think of Alan Parker's films as having uh, a kind of contemporary rock pop sensibility um, and, um, and him being attached to, you know, certain kind of music. It's just, he's been attached to lots of kinds of music and David Putnam, you think about, you know, chariots of fire. Which Absolutely. Was, so it's curious. And killing is, fields. It, it makes me, you said you went to a lot of films. 
were you also listening to the radio and contemporary pop music or were you cer- certain folks just loved a very specific kind of music and and were ensconced in that world but were you attracted to electronic music or rock music while you were doing your studies I mean I listened to I listened to um sort of rock pop um you know and uh, and then I had my sort of classical training side. So the stuff I wrote was always orchestral or, yeah. you know, or chamber music uh, and, you know, acoustic. So I never, I never um, wrote, I was never interested for me in any kind of electronica of oh. sort of music or anything like that. What's really amazing is that your lack of interest in electronica, in some ways you've got, you've allowed that entire universe to, surfaces like oh we have to have that to now everyone wants to sound like you (laughs) (laughs) it's it's sort of survival mode that it came full circle to can you hear all the time if you give me a little you know what rachel portman does the way she does her (laughs) score it's now instead of what for a minute was we need more drum machines funny but um I, i mean i listen i've always been as you know a huge fan and i remember hearing Benny and June for the first time. And that was very significant for me, not only the film's subject. Rachel, has anyone ever brought this up? I was, we were listening to this and prepping for the interview and this, this music, it reminds me of the show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Have you, do you watch that show? Have you seen it? No. It no, has a very, that, 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 that They've sound. listened to you. They, <laughs> oh, have I, they? I was going to ask Rob, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is if anyone said, hey, can we, uh, can we rip off uh, your Benny and June? Cause it's very good. Uh, when we <laughs> listened to it, I said, you know, this is Rachel really sort of articulated this style and this kind of you know what I always think which is wonderful about Benny and June and it has to do with the theme of the film too is it's comedic this music but it's got a little bittersweet taste to it it's got a little emotional which is one of the great subtleties you know I I listened to you speak about something once where you you describe the thing that I love about film composers more than anything. It is my great fascination with composers is when someone says, I need you to write something that's sad. And then the composer will say, well, there are about 30 different kinds of sad, maybe 300. (laughs) Is it melancholy sad? Is it tragic sad? And that you, in, in something I heard you say once, talked about trying to isolate, define, describe the emotion on screen. There's no question to ask because there's the answer is always musical. You know, how, how do you, that skill is so rare and so wonderful to be able to, okay, write me something that's comedic, but also sad, like Benny and June. I I think it's, it's, it's always, yeah, I, I think it's always, I'm always interested in in writing music that says more than one thing, so so that it's 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 so it is it can be bittersweet, for example, or it can be, you know, happy sad. Why not? You can do both. You know, you can. It's a lot uh, like so, life. It is absolutely. I know. 
yeah. And, and anything that is, you know, purely one thing often runs the risk of being bland. It's, I mean, not always, but, but it can do. Oh, it can. And it's also, I think it's one of the great parts of film music is that it's nuanced. And the audience yeah. knows that character seems triumphant, but we know that her heart is breaking. You know, those kind of things are, yeah, to have a composer exactly. nail that. I, to this day, I'm amazed when somebody can do that. It's <laughs> it's just a great feat. You know, when we worked together, we worked on Winn-Dixie, which was one oh, of yes. the many films. Uh, Wayne Wang wanted to meet you and work with you. And, um, and I remember you, you played me themes on the piano. And... Uh, I sort of know for a fact that you still composed at the piano. I wondered, has anyone ever asked you, oh, I need a demo that's more evolved with other instrumentation, and then do you have to go to Pro Tools and Logic or Performer and demo up those kind of cues, which a lot of people now do. I hear entire scores. Oh, absolutely. I have to do that all the time. You do, you know. I mean, yeah. Oh, god, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, it's um, it's 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 very rare um, that uh, I I don't mock up um, large parts of the score. So oh, that, that's good um, to know because I thought the great Rachel Portman. They would just say, "Play it just one hand on the piano. Play us the melody." Well, no, I can't. I mean, you know, I'm I'm still an advocate for for letting me do it just you know because I write on the piano and you know. It, 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 but but obviously, obviously, it's it's hard for some, you know, for directors and producers particularly who who are now, you know, they're expecting to be able to hear something mocked up, um, you know. So I always do that. Of it's course, I mean, I imagine so. It's not only hard for them. Um, you know, I now have the opposite, which is composers who mock up the entire score. And then as we're leaving in the parking lot of some Los Angeles studio, the producer will say to me. Why do we even need to spend all that money on an orchestra? That sounded good to me. And you say, well, you, sort of. I mean, but you know, there's something that happens when you record orchestrally. But and I've even well, when you when absolutely sorry, no, just no. composers even say sometimes now that the orchestral portion of it. I've heard a composer say the orchestral portion of it now is boring because all they're doing is replacing the synth strings with the orchestral strings, and it's not as much fun as actually going out on the stand and creating the score. You're just filling in the numbers that you played for everyone three weeks earlier yeah. in that queue. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I feel very strongly that, um, you know, the human element, it's, it's, the, it's, it's, not, it's not just the music, it's the human, um, you know, interpretation of the music that is what touches people um Absolutely. and if we don't have that you you know it uh, so so it does run the risk and you know uh, i certainly feel it and i can hear it in music when you know when you're listening to something you suddenly you're really moved or touched by something that is that is the connection of someone actually playing something which what is what these brilliant orchestras you know in la and london and all over the world obviously but um but in particular you know where i've worked do that's what they do so brilliantly. Um, do you conduct? I don't conduct. I don't. I, I don't conduct. No, I, I don't conduct. I've um, I've never conducted um, my own work. I've always worked with um, wonderful conductors who 
I'm sure do, would do a much better job than me. I mean, apart from anything else, it means that I can, it's, it's, it's good because it means I can be in the booth and I can hear what's going down, um, which saves time. Because often if you're on the podium, you can't actually hear everybody in the orchestra and what, what, and you have to what run back was. in. Yeah. And I've also, always... also, I mean, I, sorry, I, I'm also, I, I love, I love, um, where possible, not, not using click so that the orchestra aren't all wearing headphones. That which is means the that human element. That, absolutely human. Yeah. Yeah. And I also um, wondered, um, I've never known this. Do you play the piano on your scores? Do you hire some session player and sit in the booth and have somebody else play your piano parts? Yeah. Well, you know, I, yes, I, I do. I, I, I always, um, you know, with anything orchestral, I mean, um, I have always had, um, you know, a, a, a wonderful pianist, um, play for me. But in fact, the album that I've just done, um, that is about to come out, I, I'm playing on that. Um, Ooh, which there's breaking news. So the first, Rachel, yeah, it's the Rachel first. Rachel Portman live. <laughs> I guess I wonder, and we may be, <laughs> Uh, heading towards a little bit of a break here in our conversation, but I, I wonder, will there be Rachel Portman on tour behind Lee's album? Trees now, and I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that. Well, watch this space. We'll see. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and, boy, keep... that's a ticket I would buy. That is something. And by oh. the way, I just noticed a couple weeks ago that it, maybe you had a Phantom account before, but you you were on social media all of a sudden. Yeah, I am. Is this, I haven't uh, been before. What what made that decision? I don't know. I thought I tried. You know, I just thought, yeah, why not? give it a go? See, see, you know, see what I mean, I'm curious about it. So yeah, I've only just literally just started using it. Where can people follow you? Because there's a lot of people that aren't aware of uh, your existence on on Twitter and some of the other places. Oh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, just my, with my name, Rachel Portman. That's Perfect. lovely, and you're going to see a spike after this uh, <laughs> from the three Espe of us especially with uh, your new album coming out um yeah robert we're going to yes. take a quick break uh much more to come with rachel portman when we return stick around hey score fans it's kenny we are stoked to be back for season three and we couldn't have done it without your support be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements video clips industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at ScoreThePodcast, Instagram at ScoreMovie, and Facebook at ScoreMovie, or you can just search Score, a film music documentary. Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it. Hello, this is Stephen Price. You're listening to Score the Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Love this theme. Love this music. Thank you. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Rachel Portman. This is the Chocolat main title theme. Nominated for an Academy Award. And so understandably. Good. It's so, Rachel, your music is so, uh, the only word that comes to mind, it's emotional. It's emotional for me. It's sort and it, as we said in the first part, it has a combination to me of this is happy because rhythmically it always has a feeling of 
we're bouncing along, but it's also I could weep at the same time. I don't know how you describe <laughs> that combination of feeling, but I think that's what music does. As you say, it's a happy it moment, but my eyes are kind of brimming over <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And it's just a quality that you go to Rachel Portman for. I also, Rachel, having this time to to speak to you makes me wonder, do you sing? Because your voice is lovely on this podcast. Have you ever, oh, you. do you sing on your new record? No, I don't sing. I don't sing. No, playing the piano is enough for oh, me. That was, that, was already, that was already putting myself right out there. Did you ever um, sing so in school or anything? Choir? No, no. Well, it was in a choir, yeah, sure. I sang loads in a choir. Darn, but, I was I mean, hoping I was... to hear that, you know, one of your next singles. <laughs> you you're, kidding? You're, you're going to rap. No, no <laughs> way. Rachel, no Rachel, way. Rachel, a topic that's the most obvious and boring, but, and, and if you feel that it's so obvious and boring, we shouldn't speak about it, but it's so clear to those of us in this field that you are a pioneer in a really obvious space and that your, your pioneering has now started to come to fruition. We just, yeah, which is wonderful. Which is wonderful. And I, I wonder, number one, do young composers, I've always loved to say when people say, why aren't there more women composers? I say, there's no such thing as a woman composer. There are composers. Oh, some of them happen exactly. to be women. And I said that, and then I'd always sort of stumble for the answer because I was asked that for 20 years, you know, why, why is it all white men composing? And, and it was always a hard answer. It was complicated. It was layered. Um, it was, had lots of kind of educated guesses, but it would always be, but what about Rachel Portman? Why aren't there more Rachel Portman? Say, well, that's a singular talent, but, I wonder, first of all, do the young composers, do you find them reaching out to you? Do you find people asking you for advice? I do. I do. And I do, I do from women, young women composers. And, um, you know, I, I, I occasionally, well, I, I mentor um, a few. There are a few students that I've mentored um, in a couple of programs um, just sort of small, you know, when I can, time permitting. Um, yeah, no, no, I do, I do. I find that a lot, um, women composers reaching out to is me. Is there any issue besides, you know, you, you, the bassoon isn't in that range, you should you should add lifted half an octave or an octave? Is there any um, issue that's consistent from composers who are women that they ask your advice on that's particularly tied to that issue or is it now has it sort of evaporated as an issue or is it still consistent i don't know i think i think um if if anything it it it's a kind of solidarity kind of Beautiful. thing you know where where women are, are sort of connecting with other women um just to talk about experiences and stuff but you know there's i i don't have a lot to say about being you know female in a predominantly male industry but but I'm very happy to share my you know what happened to me and what has happened to me and, and how where you know that this question comes up so much you know sure. is there is music is music feminine do I do I write more feminine music would I would I be better suited to write 
um, to, to score a film with a female protagonist. And, you know, if I look at my, my films, I have done a lot of <laughs> female protagonist films. Um, I'm very happy with that. That's fine. And I tend not to do sort of films with huge amounts of testosterone in them. I just don't. Um, and I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, oh, good. You know, I'm not really, I'm not really into action. Um, anyway, it doesn't really kind of interest me, but, but nor, nor am I into all things terribly feminine. Um, so I don't know. So, I mean, I think if anything, because it's a strange world and there isn't still parity yet between, I mean, there really isn't between male and female composers. I think it's good to be able to talk to somebody or, you know, to share, you, you know, experiences and, you know, I, if I can help, um, young women composers coming up just by, you know, being there and, and, and just chatting about my experience to them with, I, I don't have any edge or angle or axe to grind. Um, it's just, I think it's just a nice thing to do and, and encouraging somehow. Curious about, uh, at, at this year's Oscars, um, Hildur Goodnadotter scoring a, a male protagonist film and, and winning the Oscar. Yeah. Did you see her speech? I'm curious what your thoughts were about that. Yes, speech. I did. I did see her speech. I thought she was great. I thought she was so dignified. I've, I haven't met her, but I've heard that she's lovely. And um, I was cheering for her. Um, and it's a great score. And, you know, I, I loved her encouragement to other women, you know, so it's great. Really In great. some ways you answered one of the questions I wondered, which is, did you ever feel that, you weren't being offered action films or sci-fi films. I mean, that was, that's often been one of the things that young composers who are women have said to me or come up with, which is why can't I score a Marvel superhero film? Or why can't I score a war film? Um, there's, there's no gender in composition. Um, but and and I, it's interesting to say that you weren't particularly. I don't know if you weren't offered that or weren't interested in that. But it's nice to know that you didn't feel you had a burning desire to do Die Hard no. Seven. And, and <laughs> no, re- no. I mean, I, I'd quite like to do a western. Oh, um, you know, I think that'd be quite fun. You know, with a really big sweeping melody. But you know what? You know, I've have. I mean, if if I think of Manchurian Candidate. Yes. That felt like a very male score yeah. and very male sort of world that I was yeah. in, and I was I was damned if I wasn't going to prove that I could do it. Nice. It's a great do, do myself too. justice on I that. Thank you very much. I saw a piece of it preparing for this, and uh, there's a scene with Denzel, and that's kind of all testosterone with the music <laughs> thumping behind him, and I thought <laughs> she nailed it here. But then you come <laughs> to you. I actually was trying to figure out whether you were particularly attracted to three, four time because, and, and Chocolat is four, but I was listening to Emma and some of the other ones. And I thought, is there something particularly Rachel like about three, four time? And I couldn't, I couldn't (laughs) prove my theory. Hey, Rachel, um, there's a lot of composers that move to LA when they start composing. And I'm just curious, you stayed in, in England. And mm-hmm. is there a reason that you wanted to stay there? Do you mostly um, record in, in London or is there, what's the reason you didn't come to LA? Is it just that it's your home? 
you know what? It's my home. Um, you know, England, London is my home. And um, I, I, I've spent a lot of time in LA and I've come over and um, I've, uh, you know, recorded and um, come over to work on films and stuff. But it was partly to do with having family, having kids and wanting them, you, you know, I, I, could, I couldn't move out to LA. And it just, uh, also, I mean, I, I had a, I had a, I had one very strange experience in LA and I decided as well then as part of that, just one, just one. No, I had, I had, yeah, I had, I had a, uh, a very unfortunate um, uh, thing that happened to me when I was there. And I just thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to live and work in London and I'll come out as often as I'm needed, you know, to meet with the filmmakers that I'm working with in LA. And, um, but I, but I didn't bring my kids out anymore. Do you have a preferred studio to record in? In London, yeah. Um, I yeah, Air Air Lindhurst would be my preferred. I think that's where we did yeah. Win Dixie. And, yes, um, I think it is. I I love all studios, but I do like the cafe at Air. I must admit, I really it's great. That lunch break is <laughs> they have, it all comes back to lunch. Yes. They they make delicious food there, Absolutely. don't they? I mean, it's really good. It's so you know, I know recording sessions go ten to one, and at one o two. I want to make sure that I beat the orchestra into that lunchroom so I can find a seat at a booth. But um, it's interesting. I'm curious to hear about that one L.A. experience. We used to uh, have a composers come from London or from Sydney, and they were concerned that if they were that far away, would that be an obstacle to their career? And I used to advise them to go get a 310 telephone number oh did you oh, that's always. what is a great I remember idea telling david hirschfelder who lived in sydney or melbourne no, when we had this conversation so and he had just done a big film and he was going to do another at fox and he was concerned and i said just before you go back to australia get a phone number that says 310 so when they call you on that number you can say oh you know i can't i can't be there this afternoon I'll be right over. Uh, you know, <laughs> tomorrow. Oh, shoot. I have something tomorrow. Can we do it Thursday and then go get on a plane? But I've had the experience, Rachel. I don't know if you've ever had it where uh, a director or a producer went slightly pear shaped or whatever the cockney expression is when the composer was in London specifically and the film was being finaled in LA. And they said, I need to see this composer tonight. I just, we need to talk. And I've had to call a very specific composer and great friend of all of ours to say, my advice to you is to suit up and get to Heathrow ASAP because everything's starting to collapse. You have to be here as soon as possible and get in the editing room because he's freaking out and he wants to change yes. all the music. Have you had that? We've had to race to everything. I've had that. I've had that. Yeah, no, no. I've, I've, I had that a couple of times working with Jonathan Demi, and I had to go to New York. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and be there, and sort of he wanted me to be down the hall from the edit, and so that's what I did. Um, you know, a few times. Well, you'd literally um, move. You'd not only come to New York for a meeting, but you'd stay. I'd stay. Yeah, yeah, and I and and you know, yeah, uh, that's no problem. You know, I'm, I'm very happy to go and stay. I mean, it was it was it was tricky when my three girls were really small, 
because I didn't want to be separated from them. And they, you know, being that, that, that has been really important to me, you know, that, that I'm not just gone. Um, you know, uh, so, um, but, but really I, I haven't, I, I haven't had too many times, you know, I've, I've always said I'll be there tomorrow. And, you know, uh, it, it's only, as you say, when something isn't quite working, when there's a problem, there's a potential problem with the score or that you've recorded something and, you know, there are questions about whether it was the right thing and those really, really difficult situations that composers find themselves in, you know, from time to time on films where they're, they're kind of hanging on in there because there's some kind of unhappiness with what you're doing or what you've done, which is every composer's nightmare. Blame the music also. The film isn't working. Absolutely. It's, Change the music. Exactly. Change the music. Or now there's no locked film and hasn't been for years. So they've decided to take out 10 frames here and move this scene around with a a cursor and a cut and paste, and next thing you know, your music oh, isn't fitting. Do you do work, Rachel, with one particular music editor who can always solve those things for you, or do you have a great uh, kind of tribe of editors that you go to? I have a... It, it depends where I'm working. Um, I have... In fact, it's, it's funny. So, um, I, uh, I've, worked, I've worked a lot with... Um, three or four music editors who are my favorite, some of my favorite people in the world, actually. They tend to be really good friends. They tend to turn into really, really good friends um, because, and, and they, they have this extraordinary ability or these particular, particularly two or three people I'm thinking of, you know, to, um, to sort of both be there for me and there for the director and this sort of like this conduit between the two, um, which can be incredibly helpful if I, for example, I'm in London and they're in New York or in LA. Um, they are, they are my eyes and ears on the ground there. And actually, I think, you know, they can be incredibly helpful to a director who's actually wanting to say something, you know, maybe a bit awkward to me, but they can go via the, my music editor, um, you know, who can then explain it to me. And I mean, it's, 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 they're, they're wonderful. Yeah, talented. Without ever people. denigrating the contribution of every composer, I have seen music editors be the magician to solve issues, to chill out directors, to Absolutely. remake a cue from the stems up to say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this actually works. And I mean, it's one of my favorite things when everybody's freaking out and the music editor says, can you give me 30 minutes? And you think, oh, please, I don't want to have to bring in the, <laughs> you know, all the big guns and the composers got to rewrite. We're going back to Abbey Road for another session. And it's so wonderful. So great music editors are underappreciated. Definitely. Definitely. Not by me. Oh, good. It's no secret that we're all uh, being asked to stay at home right now. And I'm just curious, yeah. in your free time, do you find yourself writing more or are you watching shows? What is Rachel Portman doing to to pass the time during this weird time that we're all living in? It's interesting. Um, it's well, I find it very, very distracting. This strange time that we're in. It's very, very unsettling. Um, I personally uh, am extremely lucky. None of my none of my friends or family have been affected. Or have uh, you know? Uh, I know a few people who've contracted the virus, but it hasn't been really serious. Um, 
And I mean, I think that there, there's this sort of palpable sense um, of of worry and fear out, out there. And I particularly felt it in London. Mm. Um, and so I'm very grateful I'm not in London, actually, because I'm, I'm, I'm able to be um, in West Sussex. Because... Um, uh, yeah, I can I can be here and yeah. So, so I, I found it I find it very distracting. Yeah, it's exactly. Your ancestral home. Are you in the home that you grew up in? No. Are you nearby? No, I'm 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 in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm four miles away. Didn't stray very far. Um, it's it, no. I yeah. I'm 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 in a I'm in a, a little my little studio um, that's uh, sort of on a little farm. And do you do you connect when you occasionally to childhood memories when you walk outside um well i'm surrounded by um i'm very close to the area that i've grown up in and i know and i know the um i know all the woods and i know all the you know the paths and the hills and sort of around here so yeah i definitely do when you're asked to stay at home we talk about this a lot how composers you know hide away and write your scores but when when you're not allowed to go anywhere you said that's distracting you do you find that um, you're more inspired, less inspired to write music during this time? I think, um, well, I'm just, I, I'm sort of in a, uh, yeah, am I more, but I think I'm, 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 I, I, I'm unsettled, I, I would say. <laughs> um, and so, so it's a bit, it's, it's just a bit harder, but, um, but I, you know, I'm fine. I just feel I, I'm, it's just taking me, just give me a, another week, and I'll. I think I'll find that I'm being more efficient than I have been in the last it's, it's two and a half weeks since there's been lockdown. I think it's. I think everyone's like that. I mean, I just like. It's kind of weird, right? We're not. Allowed it is to really do weird. Well, it's in the paper no, today. The, there's a uh, wonderful article about how we put pressure on ourselves right now to be more productive, and I should read all of Shakespeare's plays, or I should clean out my sock drawer, and and that allowing ourselves to something. I'm very very adept at do very little uh productive yeah. unless i have to um <laughs> i i don't mind that but rachel just before we let you return to being unsettled in west sussex yeah. um <laughs> do you have anything on the horizon that we should know about do you have a project well, well, besides your your album yes i do yes i do i mean i i, I do i do i have um I have a film which I'm going. I'm about to start. I haven't signed the contract yet. I'm not sure I can say it's what okay. it is. We'll, we'll and, never a, tell. and another one. And another. Ne- you, you'll never yeah, tell. The 250,000 people that are listening, I just want you to <laughs> all understand this is just between us. But okay. Okay. Well, I'm doing that. Yeah. I'm doing that, and I've got. I've got another one in the pipeline too. And um, yeah, and obviously the album, which which is. Um, yeah, it's very exciting. My, and maybe a concert. Maybe a concert. Oh, we don't know. Yeah, who knows? Who knows exactly? At Wembley <laughs> is something. Can you promise us one thing? If you do yeah. a concert, can you do one in LA? Oh, please. Yes, oh, no, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I will. Yeah. No, LA would be yeah, where I come. Yeah. That would be definitely. fantastic. And yeah. Um, yeah. I also think that the unsettledness, my guess is once those films are fully underway and you are once again getting lots of annoying phone calls from studio executives, it'll be a different <laughs> kind of unsettledness. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but it'll be something to do. Yeah. 
What a treat. And it's also, unfortunately, our listeners, since we're in a podcast, can't see what's over your left shoulder, which is a kind of beautiful English sky and a tree. It's been incredible here. It's really warm. Oh, good. Well, really hot. How wonderful. There you go. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time and troubleshooting and your friend that helped uh, troubleshoot it's, as it's well. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show and we've been wanting to have you on but uh, as you may know with our show we do it in person and so we've this is kind of a blessing in disguise because it's giving us a chance to catch up with our friends across the pond so thank you so much yeah. for coming thank you on for best me. of luck with the album release and uh, you. your future films a reminder to our listeners to rate and review subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts number of ways to get in touch with us social media at score movie on Instagram, score the podcast on Twitter, score a film music documentary on Facebook, and shoot us your questions at our new uh, email, score the mailbox at epicleft.com. Uh, we'll maybe answer some of your questions on the show here. And uh, be sure to stick around after the show. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio to show you how to elevate your music. Robert, take it away. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for your patience. And most of all, thank you for your beautiful music. You've inspired me for years, and I just am grateful for your wonderful work. We'll see you next week, Kenny, composing Carol also, listening very carefully to one of the greats. Rachel, thank you. That's lovely. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Stay safe. Thank you. Hey, SCORE listeners, we're grateful for the support of you and of our sponsor, Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. Stick around. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. And don't forget, as an exclusive for our SCORE listeners, that's you, Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order of Spitfire products. That's good on over 50 of their libraries. Take a listen to this clip from the Bernard Herman Toolkit. Once again, use that promo code SCORE2020. Save 20% off your first order of Spitfire products. It's exclusive to SCORE the podcast listeners. And make sure to use that promo code also so they know we sent you. I think we'll see you next week. See you next week for another thrilling episode of SCORE the podcast.